It's time now for the PDXO WASP podcast, brought to you by the Open Web Application Security Project. The views of the guests do not necessarily represent the views of OWASP, their sponsors, and other stakeholders. Enjoy the show. Our very special guest today is Caroline Wong. She is the Chief Strategy Officer at Cobalt. As CSO, Caroline leads the security, community, and people teams at Cobalt. She brings a proven background in communications, cybersecurity, and experience delivering global programs to the role. Caroline's close and practical information security knowledge stems from her broad experience as a digital consultant, a semantic product manager, and day-to-day leadership roles at eBay and Zynga. Caroline also hosts the Humans of Info podcast, teaches cybersecurity courses on LinkedIn Learning, and has authored the popular textbook, Security Metrics, A Beginner's Guide. Caroline holds a bachelor's degree in electrical engineering and computer sciences from UC Berkeley and a master's in finance and accounting from Stanford University Graduate School of Business. Caroline Wong, thank you so much for spending time with us on this beautiful sunny day here in Portlandia. John and Kendra, it is my pleasure. Tell us about your background. How did you get your start in the world of security? So my story, like many others, is totally random. I studied electrical engineering and computer science at UC Berkeley when I was in college. This was 15 years ago. And during my junior year, I thought, okay, what I'm supposed to do is I'm supposed to get a summer internship. So I applied to, you know, 50 different internship opportunities. And the one that I got was at eBay. And it was a role in IT project management. When I graduated, I said to my intern manager, hey, I'd love to work for you full time. And he said, we can't hire you full time because there's a freeze in IT for hiring right now, but there's an entry level position on the information security team and you should go and check it out. And I, at the time, I knew so little about information security that at that point in time, I went on Wikipedia to read the page about information security. And that was most of the prep that I did going into that particular interview process. I like, you know, many of the folks that you've had on this podcast, I'm very fortunate that along came an amazing mentor and teacher. In my case, this person was Dave Cullinane, the CISO at eBay, who had previously been the CISO at Washington Mutual. He really taught me so much. He really gave me a lot of opportunities. And the rest is sort of history. So started out leading security teams at eBay and Zynga, and then later have done a variety of different roles, which I've really enjoyed because it's given me an opportunity to look at the industry from many different perspectives. Okay, I'm on a security team. I have to deal with kind of any and everything that's coming my way. And then also being on the vendor side, both product as well as consulting. And then for the last four years, I've been at a startup, which is, you know, a whole different animal altogether and super fun. So for me, I often compare myself to my sister, who is a pediatrician, and naturally a medical doctor has a very sort of well-defined path that one goes on to become a medical doctor. And I like, I kind of think my path has always been pretty much the opposite, which is to say, you know, whatever role I find myself in, I try my very best to solve problems and work hard. And then beyond that, I sort of don't know what what lies ahead. And I've been very fortunate to have just a lot of really interesting problems to solve and have met some really amazing people along the way. 
That sounds amazing. Yeah, I think many of us have taken really different paths in security, some that may more may be considered more traditional, others not so much. You had a talk earlier this year. It was titled Come for the Mission, Stay for the Culture. You mentioned budget and people as a core piece of building a security program. What do you think the budget should be or the ratio of security team size to developers or employees? So Kendra, there's so much in that question. And before I actually get to my response, The first thing I want to say is that now I've had an opportunity to work both as a security practitioner and as a human resources professional. And I think that when I evaluate security practitioner jobs, I want a job where the organization actually does value security. And what that means to me is that they're going to give me headcount and budget. And I'm saying the next thing a little bit tongue in cheek as an HR professional. I think we'll also get to this a bit later in the podcast. I think that teeth for an HR team is actually when I'm allowed to fire brilliant jerks because they're jerks. And I believe that for every brilliant jerk there is out there, I think there's a brilliant good person that you might as well hire. So Kendra, I want to tell you about a data point that I learned about when I was working at Sigital and conducting BSIM assessment. Uh, BSIM stands for Building Security in Maturity Model, and it's a descriptive framework. So it's a little different from many other application security and information security frameworks and standards where, you know, the majority of these things say you should do A and B and C. The way BSIM works is it says, hey, we've talked to about 100 organizations about what they do, and here's what we observed. And so this is a describable model. So that descriptive model told me at that time that when it comes to application security specifically, for an organization, for every 50 developers, you might expect to see one person full-time focused on software security. So again, I don't think that's necessarily a should, but I do think it's a useful data point and an interesting benchmark. Now, when it comes to determining budget for security programs, I actually want to take a step back and say that I think that cybersecurity is all about protection of digital assets. And to kind of flip that around, I think that the only reason anyone needs security if you have something of value that you want to protect in the first place. And of course, today, so many things that we value are digital. And so cybersecurity really matters. I've often said that it doesn't make sense to put a $200 fence around a $5 asset. And I think that this concept is similar for organizations. I don't think there is a one-size-fits-all model because every organization creates value in a different way. And it has a lot of different components that contribute to that value, whether it's data, whether it's technology, whether it's platforms, whether it's people. And so my strong belief is that security budgets must be unique. That being said, I do have a recommendation for how folks might consider going about it. It is often challenging to be a security leader asking for money and having the conversation about, hey, security is important. So can you give me some money so I can do these things? Now, the way that I recommend folks consider doing it is to use what I call risk management objectives. This is a concept that Sammy Miguez, another amazing teacher and mentor of mine, taught me about. So when a security leader is in the position of talking with someone who needs to make a decision about how much money to give, 
I like to take the approach that first you start out with trying to get on the same page with regards to a shared goal. So what's an example of one of those goals? One goal might be, hey, John and Kendra and Caroline, can, can we all get on the same page and agree that it's important to prevent the same types of security defects from occurring over and over again? And if we can agree to that, then what I'll do is I'll go back and put together a plan to make that happen, tell you how much it costs, and then we can go from there. Another example might be, you know, hey, can we get on the same page and agree that we all want to reduce the probability that attackers can cause critical applications and systems from functioning? You know, if uh, if we're all on the same page there, then again, I'll go back, put together a plan, tell you how much that plan costs, and we can go from there. Maybe that's a little dodgy of me, Kendra. I have <laughs> been watching some of these recent debates But to be honest, I don't think there is a one size fits all. I do think that it's important to use benchmarking data and and look at your peers and your competition and say, well, how much are they spending? And I think that's an important input to a process. But I do think that ultimately cybersecurity is about value protection, uh, value creation. Value creation is different in every organization and therefore the protection should be different. Caroline, nearly a decade ago, you published a textbook on security metrics with McGraw-Hill. Why is that an interesting area for you? And have you written anything more recently on the topic? So this was such a fun time in my career. As I had mentioned, I worked at eBay on the global information security team with Dave Cullinane. Dave actually went to eBay's executives at the time and asked for a boatload of money and then gave it to him. And so as the chief of staff for the team, I was responsible for things like managing our budget, managing our security vendors, overseeing the the various projects and consultants and the hiring that we were doing. And so Dave asked for the money. We got the money. We started spending the money. And Dave said to me six months later, okay, we've got some people on board We've bought some technology. We've got some projects in place. Now what we need to do is we need to identify the security metrics that are going to demonstrate the value of the program, show these executives their return on investment, and convince them that this needs to be a recurring thing. This is not a one-time investment. This needs to be an annual investment. And that was actually how my journey into security metrics began. Most recently, I'm very pleased to have published this summer in coordination with my colleague Vanessa Sauter. Every year we publish a state of pen testing report. And the year 2020, our state of pen testing report 2020, draws from data that we have in our pen test platform for more than 2,500 pen tests. And we also explore this concept of, you know, what's the difference between what a human can find in terms of manual pen testing versus what a quote-unquote machine can find. And in this particular question, we're really talking about DAST for web apps. And it's super fun and exciting, you know. And so that report is available for download for free for anyone. It's, ex- it's, it's fairly extensive, you know, it's like 25 pages or something. We go into what I hope is meaningful detail about both, you know, what can we as security professionals expect software and machines to help us find? And what must we rely on humans to find? Spoiler alert, only humans can find business logic flaws, problems with race conditions, 
Unchained exploits. So it's super fun to have continued to think about security metrics over the past decade or so and to be able to, frankly, work for an organization that has a lot of really cool data to analyze and to be able to to share our findings and our insights with the community. And it's good that humans still have jobs, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You know, I think that, that that does come up sometimes, you know. Uh, folks will say to me, like, so are we going to have jobs or are the machines just going to get one of our jobs? And I think that, like, truly we have a skills shortage. And what that means for automation and what that means for, quote, unquote, machines is that we can and should give as much as we can over to automation and machines, and then recognize what's not a good fit for automation and machines and make sure that we're dedicating humans to that effort. So yes, I think we're going to have jobs. <laughs> <laughs> that's always good. Those are important. Yeah, that's that's a lot of data to be analyzing. So that's really cool to draft some you know results and some concrete examples from it. So I see that you're also the instructor for the Master the OWASP Top 10 on LinkedIn Learning Path on LinkedIn. Uh, what are your thoughts on the OWASP Top 10 and how it reflects changes in application security over the last several years? So here's what I have noticed as I was creating courses for the 2017 RC2 version of the OWASP Top 10. You know, I realized that the first version of the OWASP Top 10 was published in 2003. And since then, we as an industry have had a handful of iterations. And if I compare the most recent iteration to the first one, yeah, there are some differences, but actually there's quite a lot that's still the same. And to me, that on the face of it is confusing. That on the face of it says to me that we as an industry for 17 years have had a pretty good handle on a lot of these technical solutions. We know how to identify the technical problems. We know how to address and how to fix the technical problems. And so the question is, why are they still around? Why are they still so pervasive? And just like any business process depends on a combination of people, process, and technology, I actually think that in this particular area, sometimes we don't recognize how strong we are On the technology side, again, we know how to find these problems. We know how to fix these problems. We know how to prevent these problems. But sometimes we run into challenges getting people to actually do it. We run into challenges convincing people that it's actually important to do. We run into problems communicating and getting buy-in from the folks who actually need to change the code to make it more secure. We have problems sometimes getting security teams and engineering teams to collaborate well. So again, just because we know technically how to identify some of these things, how to address some of these things, it doesn't mean that it's easy. And that to me is sort of endlessly fascinating. One thing that I respect about you is that you talk about family in the security domain, which rarely talks about family. Of course, you have your family proper at home, but you also talk about the family at work. What makes for a good family at work? So I love this question. And first, I want to say that I didn't always feel comfortable showing up to work 
and having that be exactly my personal self. At the beginning of my career, I can reflect now and say that there was kind of like two distinct Caroline personas. You know, there was sort of like Caroline at work and Caroline not at work. And I'm super pleased today that Caroline at work is the same as Caroline at home. I mean, literally, that's the case right now. I'm actually you know, in my bedroom, (laughs) which is where I've been working, you know, for the past several months. And I like that, you know, I'm pleased that I have a comfort level to show up fully as myself. And I actually believe that if we can create environments on our teams, where it's safe, and where it's okay for people to show up genuinely and authentically as themselves. I actually think that people are more likely to, frankly, produce higher quality work. That being said, I am pleased when at work, I hear someone on my team say, you know, Cobalt feels like a family. You know, to me, I take that as a good thing. I myself actually make the distinction that at work, we're a team. We're not a family. You know, if we feel like a family sometimes, great. But you know, I've also had not good times with my family. You know, and there, there are things about my family that, like, you know, the nature of biological families and legal families, if you want to put it that way, uh, is that we don't always get to choose our family. And sometimes we decide to like put up with stuff that we wouldn't choose. At work, we do get to choose. You know, at work, if somebody is not meeting expectations, if somebody is not demonstrating the core values that we expect, um, then we get to fire those people. And so while I think there are some things like it's awesome when people can show up and be themselves at work, that actually work is not a family. Actually, it's a team. Caroline, earlier this year at the RSA conference, you discussed burnout in the industry, which is an extremely important topic, especially during these unsettling times. What do you mean by burnout? And more importantly, how do we deal with it? So this is something that I'm personally dealing with actually right now, and I need to take my own advice. This year in July, I took on a greater responsibility at work. My role and my responsibilities expanded. In August, our company announced Series B fundraising. And so naturally, we're doing a lot of hiring. We're kicking off a lot of projects. We're onboarding a lot of new team members. And we're working to to help you know train up those folks and stuff like that. And then in September, my daughter started remote learning kindergarten. And here we are in October, and I'm realizing gosh, my plate is a little bit too full. And so this past weekend, I actually, I messaged the the folks at LinkedIn Learning and I said, you know, I signed up to do a, a new course on security metrics with you next month. And I'm writing to you to let you know, I'm not going to be able to do that. And on one hand, it's super uncomfortable for me to say, hey, I signed up for this thing. And now I'm telling you I can't do it. But after sort of my body and my mind had about you know, 12 hours to process, I felt so much better. And so I actually believe that any of us, you know, as humans, our destiny is constrained by our biology. I think that it's not natural for humans to, for example, work 12 hours a day in front of a computer for extended periods of time. Once in a while, sure. But I know for myself that if I have a certain amount on my plate, then I can do it really well. If I have a little more on my plate, then I can do it really well 
for a short period of time. If I have too much on my plate and I try and sustain that for a long period of time, the quality of my work is going to degrade. Now, I think that in security, this happens to us a lot. Why is that? It's because we have a talent shortage. It's because for so many of us on security teams, you know, probably someone left the team last month and maybe we're doing that person's job. You know, probably there's two more unfilled headcount that we're trying to hire for. Oh, and by the way, recruiting and hiring takes an enormous amount of work and effort. And so it's really easy to be doing more work than maybe you'd ideally like to be doing. And I think that the best solution I've found for this is to prioritize and to focus, to recognize that in order to get A done very well, sometimes you have to say, no, I'm not going to do B right now. I'm going to do B later because A is my priority. And in order to do it really well, I have to make space for it. I'm also really fortunate to have a boss that agrees with this philosophy. I have had bosses in the past who have a very different philosophy, more of a philosophy that says everything is urgently important and everything should have been done yesterday. That to me, unfortunately, is kind of a perfect setup for burnout. Really, really great perspective and advice. Yeah, thank you for sharing. I think that does apply to a lot of people, even outside of the security industry, especially as we mix home life, family life, parenting, and now, you know, teachers on the side. So you have a podcast, Humans of InfoSec, which I recommend our listeners checking out. Was there an event that influenced your decision to start the podcast? So in my career, I have at some times had a really long commute. I spent five years living in San Francisco and driving to San Jose, and I spent so many hours of my life on the freeway. And the way that I managed that was I listen to audiobooks and I listen to podcasts and I do phone calls. So for me personally, there's something that I just really like about the audio format. There's something to me that's kind of raw about it that you don't get in sort of a written form. And I love that. And and I also, I sort of naturally think people are really interesting. One of my favorite things about having worked in InfoSec for 15 years is having gotten to meet a lot of really interesting, really incredible, really amazing people. And so I thought, why don't I just do a podcast about it. <laughs> and what's fun is, so it was inspired by the social media account called Humans of New York. Yeah. You know, the intent really is simply to highlight humans of InfoSec. And one of the things that I think that emerges from that podcast is that everyone sort of comes from a different place. Everyone has a different path. And there are so many different options that folks in this community have as far as their careers go. You know, there's no one set path. There's no one set way to go, one way to do things. And that to me is just very, very interesting. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah, we really enjoy listening to the podcast and the different people who've been on it. So do you have any upcoming events that you would like to promote or talk about? So I do. This has not been scheduled yet, but the plan is in late November, although now I'm like saying that out loud and realizing, you know, we should probably consider the Thanksgiving holiday. My friend Larry Macaroni and I are going to be doing a virtual webinar on the topic of pen testing and DevSecOps. So Larry currently leads the DevSecOps transformation program at Comcast, and he and I recently collaborated on a white paper called Pen Testing and DevOps, a how-to guide. So the super TLDR version basically says, hey, 
you know, DevOps and pen testing, do they work together? How do they work together? You know, this idea that you do a pen test at a point in time, maybe in DevSecOps, a code base will go through many iterations between pen tests, meaning two things, meaning that engineers don't always have time to fix pen test results until, you know, the product has changed a bunch of times. The other thing is that because there's so much change happening so quickly, it's possible that engineers might inadvertently introduce new vulnerabilities that are going to remain active in for some time. So the spoiler is that where does pen testing fit into DevOps? It's an out-of-band activity. You know, you can do SAST in-band, DAST and fuzzing and manual pen testing out-of-band. We have the white paper. I believe that's publicly available. And we also have a virtual webinar coming up that, that we'd love for folks to join us at. Caroline, thank you so much for joining with us today. It's been a real honor and a pleasure. Yes, it's been my pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me. And thank you so much for your thoughtful questions. To hear this podcast again, visit anywhere a podcast is played. For more information, go to owasp.org forward slash www forward slash chapter forward slash Portland.